0: Who here has a birthday? I should see every hand up. Everybody has a birthday. It may not be today or this week or this month, but everybody has a birthday, right? Not this year? Oh, okay. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll let that one slide. Some of us are at that holding stage, but we still have a birthday. So what do we normally get or have on our birthday? Cake? A party? Gifts? Absolutely. I brought a gift today. It's always so much fun to try to figure out what's in the gift, right? you want to open it for me? you want to see what's in this gift? Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> you going to come over here and help me? Can you open it up? Open it up. Is killing you, isn't it? It always is when you're opening and but we have people that open little tape so they don't tear the paper. Oh, the suspense is killing me. Uh-oh. Hope it's not breakable. Good job. Okay, what's inside? What's inside? Uh Uh-oh. Open (gasps) it up. Uh-oh. Is there anything in there? It's empty. There's nothing in there. Oh, that's terrible. That's not a very good birthday present. Well, you know, our scripture that we didn't read today, because when Pastor Jen sent out the the information for me to work from, it covered chapters 6 through 7. Do you know how many children's messages are in chapters 6 through 7? So, you know, I had to pick something. And unfortunately, I picked the ones right before what she picked. But that's okay. So what it says here in uh, Matthew Chapter 7, verses 9, 10, and 11, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So I'm sure that all of you got some really good gifts when you were kids, right? Anybody remember any Birthday presents you got from your parents when you were a kid. Some, a flexible flyer. Awesome. What? Chatty Cathy. Tonka trucks. What was that? A bicycle. Did you get a horse, Kathleen? <laughs> I think one of the best gifts that I got was... Um, We got to go see the Carpenters at uh, Valley Forge Music Fair. They always came to Valley Forge Music. I grew up in Pennsylvania in July, and my birthday's in July. So we got to see them. And we were like probably six or seven rows back. It was really awesome. Karen Carpenter was my favorite. I always wanted to learn to play the drums because of her. I learned to play the piano instead. But that's okay. It was an awesome gift. And I thought, well. This has something to do with today, because today is a special day. Anybody know what today is? Pentecost, well what the heck is Pentecost? Right, they got the flames of fire and they could speak in different languages, and we call it the birthday of the church. It's when the church really went. This was the beginning of, before that they were just kind of a group doing their thing but now the holy spirit has empowered them for the mission that they've been prepared for so at pentecost god gave us probably the most incredible gift other than jesus in the holy spirit and the holy spirit wasn't just for those disciples back then the holy spirit empowers us today we're getting that gift every day pretty amazing huh so god has a ministry for us to do just like he had for the disciples and he's given us the power through the holy spirit best birthday present ever let's pray dear lord we thank you for the many 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 gifts that you give us the everyday gifts of air to breathe and water to drink and family and friends and thank you for Jesus and we thank you for the word that you've given us through him and through the Bible and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to do what you have called us to do we give you thanks for all of these gifts today the ones from the past and the ones in the future that we'll forget to thank you for So we thank you now for them. Heavenly Father Amen.
1: thank you for this day that we remember your founding your church through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that um, in Jesus Christ, God is with us, and in the Holy Spirit, God is in us, and we want to live according to your spirit. We want to walk through the gate and onto the narrow way, which, when we get there, turns out to be not that narrow. Please help us to hear your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I, know, I just happened to notice during the doxology that Tommy dressed for today. I'm glad to know that somebody reads the bulletins when I send them out ahead of time. Um, <laughs> I don't think you could probably angle the camera to show your shirt, but Tommy has a, a Hogwarts shirt on, <laughs> which... He knew to where because he. I think he knew what the title of today's sermon meant. It's Platform 9 and 3 Quarters. Who knows what Platform 9 and 3 Quarters is? Someone want to explain it? Yes, it's the train platform at King's Cross Station where the Hogwarts Express leaves from. So... Um, if you're not a Harry Potter fan, or uh, I should probably say a little disclaimer because Harry Potter gets is a little controversial in some churches. And so I just want to remind you that we have also quoted the Who here and <laughs> referred to Marvel movies. Um, we can learn things about God through all kinds of things, whether they are intentionally Christian or not. And Harry Potter's got some good analogies, especially this one. So the thing about platform nine and three quarters is that you can't actually see it. And the only way that you can get to it is you have to believe that you can get to it. And then you have to, there's this pillar between platform nine and platform 10, and you have to run at the pillar. And if you do that and you believe it, you're going to go somehow through the pillar into this kind of other dimension, and you end up, on a platform that you couldn't see before that's gonna take you to somewhere that you couldn't possibly get any other way. You wouldn't be able to get to it if you took the train from platform nine or the train from platform 10. The only way you can get there is from platform nine and three quarters. A few months ago, I don't even remember which sermon this was, but a few months ago, I said in a sermon, I remember saying this because it was kind of a new thought to me as I was saying it, um, the narrow way that Jesus talks about in today's passage is not the middle way between two options. It's not narrow because it's somehow this fine-tuned like compromise between two different things. It's an entirely different option, and it's a supernatural option. You can't see it with the naked eye. You find it not by magic like in Harry Potter but by faith and it takes you to places that you could never get by ordinary means. Once you arrive at the place where this narrow way takes you, you experience and learn and accomplish things that you never could have before but You also can go back to the usual world with everything that you have gained still intact and use those things to participate in saving the world. But our way to the kingdom of God is not a platform at a train station. It's a gate. And Jesus himself, as he says in the Gospel of John, is the gate. So today's passage that we're looking at, including the part that Barb brought up in her children's message, which, or her message in a basket is what we're calling it now, um, is it's part of all the same thing, and it's the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount. He has pretty much spent the entire time from chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, all the way to now, surprising his disciples and the crowds around them by upending their expectations of what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like. And if we read it carefully and try to imagine that we haven't read it before and take out all our preconceived ideas, he can surprise us, too. He shows us that in the kingdom of heaven, the poor and the meek and the peacemakers, not the rich and the powerful and the warmongers, are the kingdom's blessed representatives. He shows us that the law and the prophets are fulfilled when their message enfolds every aspect of our lives in the love of God. And and we can say that the whole sermon is about that because last week we looked at him talking about how he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill them. And actually the verse right before the passage that Mark read today, he says, In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you for... This sums up the Law and the Prophets. This means that everything in between what we looked at last week and what we're looking at this week is about how to fulfill the Law and the Prophets, which is about loving God and loving others in his name and as we would love ourselves. And he shows us that in the kingdom of God, prayer and giving and fasting are to be acts of love and devotion to God to help other people, not to gain merit for ourselves. He shows us that forgiveness is the cornerstone of the kingdom. If we don't offer forgiveness, we can't receive forgiveness. Both worry and judgmentalism, which are basic human defaults, he tells us, are not only unnecessary, but actually kingdom people are commanded not to engage in either of them. We kind of worry and judge as second nature. In the kingdom of heaven, that's off the table. That is not for us. Living like this does not come naturally. These things are like superpowers. We have to enter the narrow gate and walk the narrow way to have any hope of accessing this way of living. This week I read an anonymous quote on the internet, which said, progress is not achieved by luck or accident, but by working on yourself daily. What do you think? Uh, It's kind of of hard to know what to think about that, right? It's a little vague. Um, It was posted by a devout Christian who loves Jesus, and... However, I think, like many of us, it's really easy to get, to read something like that on the internet, or in a book, or whatever, and think, yeah, that's the Christian way of doing things. But it's not exactly. It's wise, but it's wise on kind of a human level. The statement about progress in general is true enough. If we are living comfortably as citizens of empire. I'm not saying it's bad to work on yourself daily. I'm just saying it's human. There's nothing supernaturally powered about it. Jesus' whole point as he wraps up his sermon today is that we can't do any of what he has just described in those three chapters through our own effort. We can't do it through our own effort. We can't do it by luck or by accident, like the saying says, either. Enter through the narrow gate, he says, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Paul and I were talking about this passage a couple times this week, and Paul said, and I quoted that, Paul said, that's depressing. (laughs) And it is depressing if the only way to get through that gate is by working on ourselves daily. That's depressing. Our will and our action are involved in going through the narrow gate. You don't just surprise and up there. Um, we we have to want to go there. But, and like Harry Potter, if he wants to get to platform nine and three quarters so he can go to school at Hogwarts, he, he has to actually run at the column. He has to have faith. But it's there's still nothing... Um, He doesn't have to be good enough to get there. He doesn't have to know somebody extra to get there. He he has to have something in himself and believe in this process. So similar to that, not identical, but similar to that, everything about the kingdom of heaven or nothing about the kingdom of heaven can be accessed by normal human methods. We can't just go to this train station, look at the timetable, select a destination among many other destinations, get on a normal train at a normal platform, and hope that it takes us to a good life. Or even a normal life. I don't even know what a normal life (laughs) looks like. All the regular trains ultimately end up at destruction. So the rest of Jesus' sermon, we could kind of say, is him describing briefly, the typical trains that humans try to take to find the good life. The first one, he kind of implies, he embeds in this narrow, broad way analogy. The first train that we take is the crowd. We often, human beings, are people who follow the crowd, even those of us who like to do things differently and want to say I'm, I'm unique, I'm an individual, I'm not going to follow the crowd. There's a crowd of people that are also doing that. (laughs) So there's not a whole lot of um, genuine individuality. Jesus, I think, specifically, based on the audience he's talking to in this passage, is talking to a very um, communal-minded society. So a lot of times when I'm preaching here, I talk about, and we're looking at, you know, we're looking at the Bible text, and I try to remind us because we come from an individualistic society, and that doesn't always translate into Scripture very well either, um, and so I have to remind us: don't forget, like, we're responsible for our individual actions, but we're also responsible for our actions as a group. In Jesus' context, he has to point out to people when they need to think about their individual actions, right? Because they already think about the community idea. That's their default. And so I think in this particular passage especially, Jesus is saying, look, community is your default, but you can't actually get through this narrow gate with the whole crowd. It's narrow. You have to go through it. You can't default to what everybody else is doing. And he writes as the old walled city of Jerusalem still has several gates, some with wide roadways so that cars can get through, others with steep and narrow steps so that only pedestrians, animals and small handcarts can pass. Jesus hearers would have been familiar with many towns and cities like that. Some city gates would be wide enough for several people to go in and out at once, at others you would have to wait your turn. Jesus sets his face against any idea that you can simply go with the flow, allowing the crowd to set the pace and direction. You really have to want to go there. Jesus is saying, you can't rely on the fact that you are one of the chosen people, or even that you are religious, or even that you have a good heritage, or a godly heritage. You can't rely on that to get through this gate. You have to... Look for the gate, and you have to go through it yourself. You have to choose to go through it. Then he goes on to the next train or way that we try to get into the kingdom of heaven. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. So it's important to note that false prophets are not always just cult leaders or even leaders of some other denomination that is not ours. Not only can we not rely on our heritage to get in the gate, we also can't rely on our religious leaders just on the basis of their being religious leaders. We can't, the people Jesus was talking to could not rely on the scribes and Pharisees. This was probably news to them. They weren't really the scholars here. Um, they were part of a community that was based on faith in the one true God, and they anticipated that their religious leaders were going to be the ones that were helping them to get into where they needed to be. And Jesus is basically saying, that's not necessarily true. They're, these guys are not necessarily going to be a help to you. But this is still true in our day. We have... Celebrity pastors, there's constantly uh, scandals around celebrity pastors, but even our own pastors, I am including myself in this, you cannot default to somebody out there to get you into the kingdom of heaven. Even though earlier in his sermon, Jesus tells us not to judge, we can see here that for him, judgmentalism and discernment are two different things he writes, says, in the Old Testament, the test for true and false prophets was, wait and see. If the prophet tells you that something is going to happen, you will discover whether they are truthful by seeing if it does. Jesus has a more graphic and perhaps quicker method of detection. Look at the life of the person who is offering you advice. Jesus says, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. If you, how many people have fruit trees? So if you planted a fruit tree and it started to bear fruit, and you maybe would let it go a couple of years to, just to see, but you picked a fruit, it looked ripe, you bit into it, and it was not ripe. And it never ripened, or it got instantly dry and mushy. Mushy peaches, well, or apples. One bite, forget it. I'm not eating that again. If the whole tree is like that, sorry tree, you're coming down. And I'll use you in my wood stove this winter, but <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to keep you taking up soil and space in my garden. I'm going to plant something else there. So. Jesus is saying, don't pay attention to what is being produced by these people that you're looking up to. Jesus anticipates and encourages people to notice the kind of fruit that their leaders are bearing. If you can tell your leader is in it for the power or the money or the recognition, or if the ministry itself is producing people who do not practice the qualities of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has been outlining for the past three chapters, there might be a false prophet there. Fruit matters. This goes back to our sermon series in Galatians last fall, which where we spent a lot of time talking about the fruit of the Spirit. This is why the fruit is important. But even if you have a leader and a ministry that's producing good fruit, that in itself is not going to get you into the kingdom. That might help you see the gate better. It might point you in the right direction, but you still have to go through the gate yourself. Then Jesus moves it even a little more personally. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You can't rely on your heritage to get into the narrow way. You can't rely on your leaders. You also can't rely on your own spirituality, even your spiritual gifts. This is relevant for this Sunday, which is Pentecost. Jesus isn't saying that kingdom people, people who are really part of the kingdom of heaven, can't or won't do miraculous things. He's saying not everyone who does them is my disciple. Some people are not actually in the kingdom of heaven, and they're still able to do miraculous things. Paul and I were talking about that this week. Um, We're aware of a couple of different scenarios where um, some people have exercised really dramatic gifts that appear to be from God and the result of those gifts has been negative and those people's lives are not bearing good fruit. And we were talking about how this is possible and have pretty much concluded that like a good gift giver, when God gives a gift, he doesn't take it back. If you give somebody a gift, you don't get to control how they use it anymore. So if somebody gets a miraculous spiritual gift, that gift may still be operational, even if the person took the gift, said thank you very much, and went on and did their own thing with it. On the other hand, Jesus isn't even talking about people using their gifts badly. Sometimes people have a gift and they're using it and it and the results seem good. And they still might not be in the kingdom of heaven. This passage used to make me super nervous because Jesus, even though Jesus is talking about healing and um, casting out demons and that kind of thing in his name, you can extrapolate. It's pretty likely he's also implying any other Good work or gift that you have. Just because you do these things, even in Jesus' name, doesn't necessarily mean that you are a kingdom person. Yikes. Used to have huge anxiety about this. Anything, here's the key: anything we do, good works, good teaching, Miracles, even done in Jesus' name, is not enough if we are doing it in our own strength, outside of a living, growing relationship with Jesus. So we can give lip service to Jesus. We can Jesus it up all over the place. But if we're not actually relating to Jesus, it's sort of taking his name in vain. Because we, we don't have the connection. This is the key to the gate or the way through to platform nine and three quarters. Knowing and being known by Jesus. He, he shows this in verse 23, where the people who are doing these good things say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Paul paraphrased this as, who are you again? <laughs> All of these things that Jesus has just pointed out, our identity as a community, our leaders, our good works, can and sometimes do become defense me- mechanisms to keep Jesus from getting to know us that might sound strange because we're like well Jesus is God and he knows everything so obviously he knows us but you know I mean everybody here is in some sort of relationship it doesn't have to be romantic you have friends you have colleagues you can't fully get to know another person or have a real relational dynamic if you're not both sharing yourselves with each other. Jesus knows everything about us, but he wants to know our hearts. He doesn't just want us to know him. He wants to know us. He wants us to give ourselves to him, to bring ourselves to him, to open up ourselves to him, be honest with him. If Jesus said to me, if I got to the end of my life, And Jesus said to me, I never knew you. That would completely devastate me. I now have assurance that he will not say them to me, even though this passage used to make me super, super nervous. But it's not, I'm not assured that I will never hear those words because of anything about me. It's not because of anything I've done, and it's not because of anything I deserve. It's not because of luck or accident or working on myself daily, even though I try to be intentional about living out kingdom values. It's not because my ethnicity or my nationality or my religious heritage are so great, even though I am grateful for all of those things. It's not because of the pastors I've learned from or the Christian schools and seminaries I've gone to, even though I've been to ones and learned from pastors who consistently bear good fruit. It's not even because I've been in ministry for most of my life. That's not where my assurance comes from. My assurance comes from the fact that Jesus knows me. And the reason I am sure of that is because he keeps showing me things about myself. (laughs) We're really good at hiding from ourselves. And there are plenty of things I would love to hide from myself, And Jesus keeps bringing them up. So I know that he knows me. And I suspect he knows you too. But it's really easy to take all of these other good things and put them up. Okay, Jesus, that's a little too close. Stand back. How about this good thing I just did in your name? Jesus shows us things about ourselves as we allow him to get to know us, and that is partly how we get to know him. And the way he does that in Disciples of Jesus now is through his Holy Spirit taking up residence in our lives and making it, slowly but surely, a life more like his life. Because Jesus lived the way he preached, loving his enemies, who, you and me all the way to the cross and back up out of the grave to earth and now he sits at the right hand of the father because of that the holy spirit was released on the day of pentecost to live in the lives of all who trust jesus the holy spirit gives us gifts but the greatest gift is the ability to know and be known by jesus the holy spirit helps us to know jesus and makes us known to Jesus. The Spirit empowers us to walk the way of the kingdom and gives us a stable foundation on which to build and be at home. So it's interesting that this passage starts out where Jesus says, you have to go through the narrow gate and you walk on this narrow path, but they're not narrow because they're so awful. They're narrow because it's hard to get there but they're good, from the passage that Barb read this morning. God gives good gifts to those who ask him, or in the Luke version of that same passage, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. It's a good gift, and it starts off with a walk along the way, but it ends up at home. The way of the kingdom is not, it's a way, you have to move, you're not camping out between platforms 9 and 10, and you're not camping out on the train track going this way and this way, you have to get there a different way. But when you get through, it gives us a home, even as we journey, with a firm foundation. And the foundation is the words of Jesus. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. We know what happened to both of those houses. But Jesus himself is our assurance. He's the word and the rock and the firm foundation. He's the gate to the way of life, and he's also the destination, our true home. So in our imaginations as we've been sitting with Jesus on the mountain, as first century Jews listening to him, we don't have, as, as those people, we don't yet have the Holy Spirit living in our lives, and we don't know that that's going to be a possibility in a few years. But we do have the Son of God sitting right in front of us, talking to us. And so the choice is ours. Will we follow him on the narrow way, or will we get on another train with the crowd and our own good works and our own good intentions and head somewhere else? Where do we go from here? This sermon, Jesus' sermon, but also this sermon, concludes the first section of our Matthew series. And so next week, the section that we're going to start out will be a little bit shorter. And we're going to be watching people, individual people, and some spiritual powers encountering Jesus. And I'll post these online too. But these are the questions to kind of ask yourself as we go through this next section of Matthew. What do the people, or the spiritual powers, ask of Jesus? What do they want from him? What do they receive from him? What do they make of him? Who do they think he is? What does he make of them? And... At each step of the way, who do you say Jesus is? What do you suppose he says about you? Let's pray. Lord God, it is ridiculous and crazy, almost as crazy as an invisible train platform, or maybe even crazier, to think about actually knowing and being known by the God who created everything. And yet that is what you want. You want to know us because you love us, not because you want to condemn us. You want to know us because you are the source of life and you want us to live. You really, really want us to follow you onto this narrow way. Please help us to find it in you and to dedicate our whole lives to following you there so that our lives can be built on the firm foundation. In Jesus' name.